promise and disappointment, it just keeps happening. And so at the end of the book, you have this, this narrative that actually gives a bit of a, a kind of a representative um, a parable. Like this is something that happened toward the end of his reign as, as Israel's king, and it's something that um, is paradigmatic of his life. And so we get to kind of see what that means and, and how that might be a, a helpful reflection into our own uh, walk with Jesus. Now, before this passage, leading up to this, David, uh, I love the way one commentator said it, he, he conducted a senseless census, okay? So it's a census. He counted all of the, the uh, military age and capable men in Israel, and we don't know why he d- chose to do this. Like we, the, the context implies that it was because he maybe wanted to he wanted to get a, a, a reassurance of like what of how strong militarily Israel was. We know that um, Joab, his advisor who betrays him and he can't really trust, is very skeptical of David and kind of implies that David is delighting in the counting of his of of his his soldiers and his army, kind of like we might you know dollars in the bank. Um, maybe he forgot that the Lord is his strength, as we said in our as we read in our call to worship this morning. Maybe he became proud thinking that he and not God is responsible for this achievement. We don't, we don't really know, but there's something about this that David sees as sin. So let me pick up in verse 10 and read through the rest of the chapter. After doing the census, it says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna, Arauna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aron... I have no idea why I'm having trouble with that name. Arawana, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word and as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. 
Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea of the land, for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is, this is a strange way to end a book of Scripture. A book that started with so much promise and turmoil and conflict to see that even your anointed, your king, that is not like the nations, that he would still not be enough, that we would still be waiting and, and, and the story unresolved. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to see the ways in which this story is our story, and as, as well as that our story is, is one of redemption and hope. That even as we're discouraged by how little some things change, Lord, we have a hope that is bigger than any change we might be able to make on our own. Lord, guide us as we go through your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I, ask by, I want to start by asking, I want, to ask, I want to ask you to be honest with yourself. What is the story that you tell yourself? What is the story you tell yourself? I'm not talking about the story, the kind of story that you, you write out in a college application or maybe that you cite when running for office or putting on your resume or even hypothetically pitching an idea for a book. I'm talking about the, the kind of story that, is, that starts with if they only knew. The kind of imposter syndrome echoing in your heart or the one that says maybe that you might be worthwhile, but the jury is still out and the end is still unwritten. I'm talking about the story that you tell yourself that you actively try to avoid by binge-watching Netflix or working yourself to death in your job to drown out that voice narrating in your heart certain failure, impending exposure, or confirmation that you are, in fact, unnecessary or as unlovable as you fear. I'm talking about the story that haunts the edge of your consciousness in those rare moments of silence and stillness when you forget where you put your phone. But hey, maybe that story, we, have, we, we don't have to like submit to that. Maybe that story is unwritten. Maybe we can write our own story. Maybe if we speak our truth enough, then our truth will become the truth. Maybe we can chart our own course. Maybe we can fulfill our destiny and we can author our own story. And maybe that can fill the cross-shaped, God-sized hole in our hearts. Do you realize how much that feeds and fuels the story we are actively trying to rewrite? So when you tell yourself this story for the umpteenth time, right, because it doesn't go away, 
how does it start? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, that it probably doesn't start with these magical four words we associate with fairy tales of once upon a time, <laughs> right? Those four words are powerful, aren't they? The contrast between those four words and how our story starts is probably pretty significant. Maybe even, uh, and if that's the case, then maybe the four words that we start our story with are as significant and tell us something about that story as well. So what are those first four words of your story, the one haunting you? Is it, if I could just, is it, why do I keep Maybe it's, who are they to, or all I need is, <laughs> that's my favorite, I can't do this. Maybe this time I, what? How do you finish that? Is that the story you tell yourself? What keeps that story stuck? What inhibits your story's progression from chapter to chapter, from bad news to good news? What prevents you from living happily ever after? And that to follow, if not once upon a time, if I could just live happily ever after. Is that, is that is what inhibits that? Is that a boulder? Is that, is that roadblock a boulder-sized temporary affliction to overcome? Or is that a mountain-sized impossibility to avoid even looking at it all costs? Or maybe, maybe it's like a, a handful of loose gravel, the accumulation of small things that you try to ignore and pretend that they're not things, and yet they still slip you up over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. What four words are as discouraging to hear on repeat as much as Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe, did for Bill Murray on gro in Groundhog Day. I was really struck by the coincidence that it's also four words. I wonder what entering David's story would be like, and I wonder if he might be able to identify with what I'm talking about, right? Because unlike our story, David's is a little bit different. David's story began, actually began like a fairy tale with the words once upon a time, right? He was a young, unlikely, and rejected Cinderella-like runt with rugged good looks and curly hair. He was anointed by God and chosen as the king that God's people may not have wanted, but nevertheless was the hero they needed. He slayed Goliath. He joined the king's court and married the king's daughter. Despite he and his mighty men winning victory after victory because they had you know, clear eyes and full hearts, and despite being unjustly persecuted by elites born with a royal blood in their veins and a silver spoon in their mouth, David still had time to indulge his inner emo band and pen some of the most beautifully vulnerable and honest lyrics about God's unlikely yet remarkably faithful love. You'd think that that story could only end with happily ever after. The good news is, it didn't. It's very good news that his story did not end happily ever after. By this time in David's story, he was tired. He, was, he had to have been soul tired. He 
was kind of barely hanging on. He was beat up and ground, ground down at this point, and he had his share of losses and more unforced errors than a Cardinals versus Cubs baseball game. And you know which direction I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, boy. Speaking of unforced errors. <laughs> Sorry. But even battles won are still battles fought, right? And victories still leave scars. You know what I'm talking about, right? By the end of David's life, one of his, like, like I, I actually wonder if this is, this is something that, that Jesus had in his mind while he was telling the story of the prodigal son, because he actually, David had one of his sons actually, not as a parable, but literally could not wait for him to die before he claimed the throne and all of his inheritance. David couldn't trust his advisors as far as he could throw them, and his wife refused to warm his bed. And I don't mean that analogically. I mean that literally, because it even says in 1 Kings that his circulation in his body was struggling and he, could, he was shivering himself awake every night. Now, you can imagine how he might also hear narrated in his heart, if I could just, why do I keep? Who are they to? All I need is, I can't do this. Maybe this time I, what? Like David, the longer we live, the more our story seems written in stone. The more we regret and the more that we fight to be our own author as if we can rewrite what has already happened or make up for it in some way in future chapters. But the more that we do that, the more we fear that we are destined to be defined by the broken record narratives that haunt us still. Every day we become more painfully aware of where we've fallen short, of where we've fallen short of, of, of others' expectations, of our own hopes and dreams, and, and or what God has called us to. It can become all that we see. We feel trapped and we feel tired, soul tired even. Earlier, I, I said that it was good news that David's story doesn't end happily after, ever after, and that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? <laughs> right? Because wouldn't it be more hopeful for us if we knew that David's story did end happily ever after? Because that means that maybe ours could too. Let's read verse 14 again. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. You see in this one verse... How, how David's story might have a little, more than a little bit of PTSD in it, right? He was afraid to fall into the hand of man because he, not hypothetically, that had happened, right? He'd been in hiding, on the run, in the wilderness from people who were supposed to be for him, but weren't. He didn't want to depend on the hand of man, and his story was characterized, because his story was characterized by PTSD from fellow man's sense of, and I put this in air quotes, justice. Instead, 
He knew that God's story is one characterized by merciful deliverance, both from rightful justice and injustice alike. Both others' injustice and justice, deserved or not, and his own injustice and his sins and failures. And so in verse 14, what we see, and the reason why it is good news that that David's story didn't end happily after, after is because what we see in verse 14 is David relocating himself within God's story in order to be delivered from his story. Let me say that again. David is relocating himself within God's story. He's viewing his story through that redemptive lens, a lens of mercy, in order to be delivered from all I need is to be rescued from this again. You see, unlike us, David doesn't fall into what's called uh, main character syndrome. Have you guys heard of this term? Maybe raise your hand if you've heard of this term before. Oh, excellent. Yes. So main character syndrome is a psychological disposition where individuals perceive themselves as the central protagonist in their own lives, And you might be thinking, like, what's wrong with that? Which is a very American response. And view their experiences, actions, and relationships through the lens of being the main character of their own personal narrative. There are many things and many people we can blame for this very real cultural dynamic that we forget and don't even realize we are doing as a lens we are reading Scripture with. We can blame social media, especially Disney, at least, right? But all of these are an expressive individualism. They are symptoms of this this kind of tyranny that we've put upon ourselves of believing that we have to, as Genesis 11 says, that we have to make a name for ourselves, that we have to find ourselves or discover ourselves or write our own story, be the author of our own narrative We have so many myths, whether by Disney or Pixar or whatever else you watch on Instagram on a regular basis. It doesn't matter. We have so many myths that tell us that we can do this. But when given the opportunity, what is the story we tell ourselves? It's not, it's not hopeful, if we're honest. Unless the story that you tell yourself is one of hope that God has rescued and redeemed you through no merit or righteousness of your own, then any and every story in which you are the main character or the author or both is a false narrative and it is bad news. So what in the world is going on in 2 Samuel when David's story ends with making a sacrifice on a threshing floor. Well, he is actually not just saying, he is doing and trusting God enough that he is relocating his story within God's story. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the language, uh, uh, let me me explain this. A threshing floor is a place that is often elevated. It's an open-air location, typically flat and clear of anything that that could... um, that could cause what farmer, like farmers putting freshly cut grain out and spreading it out on this, this flat surface area. And they do so, and it's elevated so that the wind would blow away the chaff. 
right? So that the wind would blow away the stalks and the leaves and the dust and all the whatever refuse, like what, the things you don't want to eat when you're, when you're harvesting grain, right? God told David to go build an altar and ma- make sacrifices here because we see that that is where God stopped the angel of the Lord. That is where the plague ended, where God held this mysterious angel of the Lord back from further destruction. Why is that significant? David knew that when we talk about history, when we talk about God's story, God's story plays out in history, and therefore, like history, God's story does not repeat, but it rhymes. At an earlier chapter in history, in God's story, in the book of Exodus, something happened that Israel has, that, that marked and changed Israel's un- self-understanding and their story, their identity forever. It's called Passover. While Israel was under the yoke of slavery in Egypt, under Pharaoh, God sent 10 plagues to get Pharaoh to let his people go so that they could not just go and 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 be free, but so that they could go be free to worship and to live into God's story of them as his people. And the last of those 10 plagues was an angel of the Lord going, passing over every household and taking the life of every firstborn, except those who sacrificed a lamb and smeared the blood on a doorpost. David understood when he's using the, because the, David uses a different word for plague when he goes up to Aruna and talks to him than, than what was used by Gad with pestilence. It's a different word. David's saying, I know what this is about. This is like Passover. He's understanding that God telling him to go build an altar and to sacrifice is actually God renewing his covenant promise of hesed to his people despite their rebellion again and again and again. But it's also, this is, this is incredible, it's also even more than that. You see, because narrative, like stories, if we, if we know stories, right, they don't just progress linearly. A, a good story builds on what came before, and then you understand it and you look at what came before with fresh eyes because of what is happening anew. And similarly, Passover was a turning point in Israel's story. A turning point from no way out slavery under Pharaoh to being the most high God's chosen people. And Passover is the foundation of the entire sacrificial system in Leviticus that that God graciously gives Israel in order to be with Israel. If that's the case, then what, what, what God is having David do here at the threshing at the threshing room floor. Is, is laying a literal foundation for the temple. That's what happens. If you keep going in 1 Kings, you see that David's son, Solomon, builds the temple on this location. It is a literal foundation of the temple. And the closing of a chapter of Israel's story that began with Passover, because at Passover, right, The sacrifice came first, then the plague and the angel of the Lord came second. Here it's the opposite. The angel of the Lord came first, and God stopped the angel of the Lord, and then sacrifice. They're bookends. 
what 2 Samuel is ending with is a, is a bright neon sign telling Israel that I know David was not enough. I know my anointed was not sufficient, that you need a greater and truer anointed. And yet at the same time, I am not going to have you just spin your wheels in your relationship with me. The story goes on. Redemption is still moving forward. And that thing that happened generations before is yet finding its resolution and its fulfillment in the flawed, merely human Messiah that is David. God would not just dwell in a transient tent among his people. He would dwell permanently among his people within the temple. And even though David was unable to deliver Israel's every ath after, even though David was unable to deliver Israel's happily ever after, he was still the greatest Israelite king in the Old Testament. And even though his story was marked by passivity and selfishness and hopelessness and foolishness and all kinds of should have known betters, just like ours is, God redeems. He mercifully uses all of David's not enoughness to author the next chapter in Israel's story of redemption. And in the same way, that story is part of a bigger one. In the same way, the Old Testament as a whole is one chapter filled of chapter after chapter rhyming both the not-enoughness of God's people and the more-than-sufficient mercy of God's redemption. And all of that leads up to the climax of all of human history when God moves his dwelling place from a temple among his people to flesh and spirit within his people. David knew that this was not the end of his story because it was not the end of God's story. And he definitely had an inkling of where it was headed, but that he could not have fathomed the breadth and depth of redemption that God would write upon the hearts of man. Unlike David, we have more than an inkling of where redemption is headed. <laughs> right? We have the good news that redemption is actually accomplished. And that changes everything about our story. Here's, if you've listened to nothing that I've said so far, hear this and then we're going to move into the Q&A. Okay? Because I was struck by this, an, an incredible quote recently by uh, Simone Wiles, who said, there is no better time to be born than when all is lost. There is no better time to be born than when all is lost. For one who authors their own story, that is nonsensical. And it's soul crushing. Only the one for whom God's story is their story can hear that quote as good news or as a prelude to redemption pregnant with promise. Whatever it is that has you soul tired, whatever it is that has you frustrated and feeling stuck 
and discouraged, like, like the next chapter is never going to come, that you just kind of keep repeating the same historical mistakes with the same historical weaknesses and the same historical beginning four words of your story. That's not the end of your story. It just isn't. That's not, it's, it's like, hear me. This is not something you have to believe is true for it to be true. The end of your story doesn't depend on how confident you are that it is the end of your story. That is the freedom and the gift of not being the author. And it is a freedom and a gift that is only possible if the main character of, of our story is Jesus Christ. That is good news. It is good news that you don't have to rewrite what has been written because your name is written in the book of life. That's better. Oh my God, that's so much better. We, we know even more than David did how our story ends because, because at the time of David's story was, was being written by God, Israel was just betrothed to God through David. In Christ, the church is his bride. We're not just looking forward to the wedding day. It's happened. We are engaged to be the Lord's. Heaven and new heavens and new earth, the very end of the story, it's a reason why it's not called a wedding, but a wedding feast. It's the party, guys. The wedding happened right about 2,000 years ago when Jesus gave himself to his bride. So here's your takeaways. If you're a Christian, you are not the author of your story. Your story is graciously rescued by and into what God is authoring. His story. Your redemption isn't just a future promise, though it is at least that. It is also a present reality. Anytime you read in the New Testament, where especially Paul says this, where we are in Christ, to be in Christ means to be caught up in his story of rescue and redemption. To be in Christ is what defines you, not the failures that haunt you or the weaknesses that exhaust you or the sins that plague you. God stopped the angel of the Lord at the threshing floor. Jesus was the sacrifice that paid for that, that gifted you God's mercy. What we do here every single Sunday morning as a church, what we do when we come together is we say yes and amen to that story. Because the church is an embodied narrative, the embodied narrative of the gospel. And in this embodied narrative, as the body of Christ, we both experience, rehearse, and retell this amazing story of God's very strange love and and longing to redeem us and make us his own. When we do baptisms, when we do, like, we're, spoiler alert, we're, we're a Presbyterian church, so, so that means we, do, we baptize babies. We do not baptize babies because that saves them or anything like that. What we are saying 
is actually what we say as a blessing over that child every time we do it. And I want to read this to you because I, I want, this is what I want you to hear every time we do this from now on, right? We, we say this blessing over a covenant child and we say, for you, God made the world. For you, the prophets and patriarchs were sent. For you, the covenants and promises were given. For you, he came into the world as a baby like yourself. For you, he lived, died, and rose again. This gospel is your story. And we, your church, promise to tell you this story until and beyond the time you've made it your own. That thing that you're thinking about as I say that, that thing that haunts you when you actually slow down enough to hear it, whatever that is, what, what, what makes you wonder whether God's grace is big enough to cover it, that, that's a part of your story. It's not the end of your story. It's not even the part of the, your story that defines you now. It used to. Restoration Shalom, renewal, perfect, glorious, flourishing relationship with God. That is the end of God's story and yours. The end of God's story and ours is the new heavens and new earth where everything is made new. It ends with every single one of our tears being lovingly bottled by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That you are caught up within his people as part of his bride and yet also seen individually and specifically and known every single part of your story. He's not scared. Our story ends with utterly unmitigated, infinitely unmediated, and eternally unending embrace of the one by whom and for whom we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That story, I'm just going to tell you now, you can't write a better ending. You can't write a beginning middle, a better bit middle. You can't write a better beginning either. God redeems, and it's a story worth living because not even death can change that ending. So nothing you do can define you enough to change it either. In verse, jumping into a question here. In verse 13, God gives three options with timetables, and the third is chosen. I'm confused because the time seems to have been completed and the damage done, but the Lord requires a sacrifice to stop the plague, even though the time prescribed had been fulfilled. What is the story communicating about God's desires, holiness, relationships? In short, what's happening here? Yes, okay. You're right. They are definite timetables. And it even ends in verse... Where'd it go? Verse 16 says, the Lord says, it is enough, now stay your hand to the, the angel. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Okay, David asks God to spare the people after he has already stopped it. It is, it seems out of order. That is for a reason. Then David goes and says, I'm, I'm, he tells Arana, I'm wanting to build this altar and do these sacrifices so that the Lord will stop. 
This is David communicating in backwards order an awareness that God's redemption has already happened, but he is playing out, he is rehearsing the story of God's people as God's, as, as God's covenant representative to his people of Passover in reverse. That's exactly it. He's completing it. He's obeying God, and in so doing, he brings that chapter to a close. That's amazing. Okay, next question. Um, this is probably beside the point, but do you think David picked the least bad of the three punishments? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. So the text implies that like the shorter the time period, the more severe the, the per- that period of time. And so it's ki- like the way it's set up is to kind of communicate like, you know, these are all the same, like at the end of the day, it's going to be felt very similarly. And David's like, you know what, I'm, I trust God to be merciful. Let's, let's, let's just get this over with, right? Um, also, what is the symbolism of the other two punishment options and why are they all in threes? Um, yeah. Um, I have no idea what the symbolism is in the other two punishment options. There's, uh, there is at least... Uh, Agricultural metaphors are all throughout Scripture, and the fact that the first one is a famine and starvation and ends with a threshing floor, uh, the scene on the flesh, threshing floor, is communicating in many ways that like this is still a greater than resolution to any kind of discipline the Lord may have been visiting upon his people. And so there's a, a, a bigness to the redemption being communicated there. Beyond that, I have no idea why they're all in threes, actually. Um, lastly... Why did God kill 70,000 for David's sin? Why did God incite David to take the census? <laughs> Somebody has a Bible with them and read to verse 1. <laughs> so, let me read chapter 24, verse 1, so, you so we know what we're talking about here. It says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, and then David saying, to Joab, go number Israel and Judah. If this is a closure and a closing of the redemptive arc that started at Passover, then this is a parallel version of saying that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Instead of hardening David's heart, it says he incited it. Why? I have no idea. What does that mean? To what degree of responsibility and agency did David have versus culpability from God? That is, not a te- that is not a question that the text or even this culture would have asked. That's a very Western uh, kind of uh, parsing of things. So it's important not to ask things, ask questions of a text that's not meant, intending to answer. However, the good news of that is this, that Maybe you, don't, maybe you don't feel this. Let me just say this personally. There are so many parts of my story where I see so much culpability and I, I, I am ashamed of things I have done, of sins I've committed, that I, I loathe and I hate. And there is a gift in knowing that even, God, even though I am culpable for those things, God allowed them to happen in a sense that frees me from the pressure of 
feeling like I have to atone for it myself because God atones for it. And so in that sense, it's kind of irrelevant because God's going to make all things new anyway. So, okay, let's pray before I ask any more questions I don't know the answer to. (laughs) Jesus, you are the beginning, the middle, and the end of our story. Your love was there for us when we spurned it, when we first accepted it, and when we struggle to understand, appreciate, believe, or experience it. Your love (laughs) surpasses anything and everything that we could do to write or rewrite our own story. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for that freedom. Lord, help us to see and to retell us, help us to tell ourselves a different story. It starts not with if I could just or all I need is, or are you kidding this again? But with God so loved the world. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.